So we've wrapped up the mini-series um, highlighting the faithfulness of Joseph. I really enjoyed learning about him and the way he remained faithful to the Lord. We have a lot more to dig into yet because Joseph's story takes up 13 chapters of Genesis. But we have now taken a significant turn in the roller coaster of Joseph's story, where he has been dragged out of the prison that he has spent the last 13 years and how he will find himself in command of all of Egypt, second in command. So in order to catch everybody up who is newer to Harbor Life or who has been enjoying this glorious Michigan summer, um, here's a really brief summary. So Joseph's story begins with him being highlighted as the firstborn son of Rachel, who was his father Jacob's favorite wife. So Jacob had four wives and Rachel was his favorite. And this leads to Joseph being declared as Jacob's favorite son also. And he was treated as the bakor, which is a Hebrew word for firstborn. And with being a firstborn, you have all kinds of honors that the other siblings don't have. Jacob gives Joseph a long, colorful, beautiful coat. And so this firstborn status and this clear favoritism leaves his older brothers to be disgruntled and jealous. And I kind of don't blame them. And then to really cement that, at 17 years old, Joseph has a couple of dreams that represent his father and mother and his brothers bowing down to him. And then he tells them about that dream. So you kind of get why they're a little miffed with him. So one day, his brothers are out shepherding the family sheep. And Jacob sends Joseph to them, who is proudly sporting this colorful coat, to go check on them and bring them some food. So when the brothers see Joseph coming in the distance, they start talking and they plot to what can they do to him. And they were thinking killing him would be the best option. But then the oldest brother, Reuben, he convinces them, let's not kill them or kill him, but there's this empty well over here. Let's just throw Joseph into this well. So they did. Joseph is in the bottom of this pit and probably feeling like he's going to die in it. Reuben goes off to check on the sheep, and the other brothers are around the pit, and suddenly a caravan of um, people come by. And they thought to themselves, this is a great way to get rid of Joseph. So they did. They sold Joseph into slavery. This eventually lands Joseph into Egypt. There he is purchased by Potiphar, who is an official captain of Pharaoh's army. So he is, works for Pharaoh the king. And here we need to highlight that over the next 10 years, Joseph will experience a couple of high moments in his life and a couple of some of the deepest lows that you could imagine. And so throughout these years of roller coaster living, Joseph has zero communication with his family. He has no idea whether his father is even alive. And then while he is suffering in prison, he was falsely accused of something, he had the haunting questions of who am I and what will become of my life? All the favor that Joseph found in his father's household was basically found in the dried blood mixed into the dust at the bottom of a well in Canaan. 
So then we'll fast forward to Pharaoh having a couple of dreams himself. And Joseph is called upon to provide an interpretation for these dreams. And Joseph unpacks the meaning of these dreams. One of them represented that there will be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. That had to have been terrible news. But then Joseph does give his advice on how to handle the situation and receives a very favorable response from Pharaoh. So that's where we'll pick the story back up. And after we read this section of scripture, I think we'll be left with a couple of big questions. And I think that will catapult the wisdom that's underneath this story into our lives today. We're going to read from Genesis 41, verse 38. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Bow down! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath Panah and gave him to Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. So Joseph's status, or his identity in Genesis 41, begins as forgotten Hebrew prison slave. And that sounds pretty destitute, doesn't it? But then it ends with he is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And Egypt was the global superpower of that time. Pharaoh, who didn't know God, recognized that the spirit of God was moving and at work in Joseph. He recognized that he was discerning and wise. He made him second in command of the entire nation and he tasks him with a really important job of preparing for the famine that was to come. Joseph is moved from the pit to a place of incredible power. But his position and his power is in Egypt. This is not the land that was promised to his grandfather Abraham, or his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, or to his dad, Jacob. Which, of course, leads to a question. Will Joseph accept this position of power? And underneath that question is, will Joseph bend his knee to Egypt 
to their ways and their gods? And that question forms what we might call an identity crisis. And all of this catapults the story into our own lives, asking, how is our identity formed? And how do we remember to whom we belong? If we zoom out and look at the general outline of this part of Joseph's story, we can see it pointing to the very beginning of Joseph's story, which creates a really interesting scenario that we might call a tale of two dads. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Did anybody have to read A Tale of Two Cities in high school? I probably would like it now, but I remember in high school, it was either my junior or senior year, I felt like that book was never going to end. But back to A Tale of Two Dads. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And I'm sure Joseph felt that way in the journey of his life the favorite, adored, the revered son of Jacob, the best of times. His brothers turning on him, throwing him into an old well, and then sold into slavery, the worst of times. Serving in Potiphar's home as a highly revered and respected servant, the best of times. Potiphar's wife lying about Joseph's integrity and then being thrown into prison, the worst of times. And then almost in an instant, it literally was that quick for Joseph. He was taken from prison to the palace to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Seemingly, in a split second, he was made second in command over all the kingdom of Egypt. So Pharaoh is kind of like the new dad of Joseph. Jacob pulled Joseph from the womb. Pharaoh pulls Joseph from the tomb of prison. Jacob named him Joseph. Pharaoh names him Zephanath Penna. Jacob gives him a colorful coat of honor. Pharaoh gives him fine robes of linen. And they both bestow on him the power of the Bacor, the firstborn. So to demonstrate Joseph's new position and his new authority, Pharaoh gives him three things to signify this honor. The first one is a ring. This was Pharaoh's signet ring. So if you see that picture, you can see the hieroglyphics in it. But these were used to sign and seal a document. So each person that had a ring had specific pattern on it. And so it symbolized Joseph's authority to act as Pharaoh himself. So he had Pharaoh's ring. It's like your dad's credit card, you know, when you're a kid, like, this is cool. <laughs> so this is a huge position of power. The ring gave him the authority to speak and act as Pharaoh. Then he was given a robe. Joseph had been given a robe. The robe that his father gave him was ripped from him. That robe said he was head of the family. Joseph only had that ring for a short time. The robe signifying his position at Potiphar's house was ripped from him as well by Potiphar's wife. And that robe identified him as a slave. He only possessed that robe for a short time. 
But now he is given a new robe made from fine, expensive Egyptian linen. This robe identified him as the ruler of the land. And Joseph held on to this robe or this position for about 80 years. He'd gone from the coat his father gave him to the cloak that Potiphar gave him to this garment, this beautiful robe given to him by Pharaoh. And then he was given a gold chain. This gold chain told everyone who saw him, yes, he is the captain of gold jewelry, right? That Joseph was a man to be revered and respected. When he passed by, everyone was to bow at his feet. Um, my uncle for Halloween one year dressed up as him. Like when that was on TV, it was pretty fun. Um, sometimes I feel like Mr. T with all my <laughs> layers of gold. So in all of these visible things, it showed the immense amount of power that Pharaoh was giving Joseph. So Joseph would not only look the part and enjoy the benefits of this position, he was given Bekor, that firstborn status of Pharaoh. He was given the role of Egypt's ruler, the person truly in charge of the nation. So can you see how this kind of mirrors the beginning of Joseph's story earlier in Genesis? The robe, the firstborn status, the power in that. So verse 48 of chapter 1 has Joseph accepting Pharaoh's offer by immediately getting to work. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. So Joseph is excelling in his work life. But what about his family life? Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So within the years, the seven years of these bumper crops where there is more food than he can even keep record of, Joseph also experiences a harvest in his own marriage. Two sons were born to him. But don't miss the tension of their names. The firstborn is Manasseh, which means causing to forget. He says on the occasion of Manasseh's birth, he names it, it is because God made me forget all my trouble, which that's good. But then he says, and all my father's household. So the symbolic name meaning of this son helped Joseph name or erase some of the pain he had experienced in his father's household. The second son is Ephraim, which means fertile land or doubly fruitful. And Joseph said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So Ephraim, the second son, is a reminder that this foreign land had been doubly fruitful for him. 
Within the birth of these two sons, Joseph has named his past pain and his current position of power as a way of forgetting his past, but is that really possible? And what does this mean for Joseph's identity? I have felt that before, and I'm guessing many of you have too. Naming your past pain, wanting to forget it, but you fully can't, because that pain is woven as part of our identities or the identity that we've found being wrapped in that pain. And then there's that tension of wanting to remember who I am, to whom I belong, and all of that mixed up can make you feel crazy. But let's keep reading to see how the story continues to unfold. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain for Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. So here is where the plot thickens, because the famine and the collection of grain in Egypt will send his ten older brothers the cause of Joseph's very traumatic past to be placed right before him, right in front of him. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. So there is so much here to this moment that we're going to continue to unravel in the coming weeks. But today, we'll briefly look at why his brothers didn't recognize him. So this part of the story takes place more than 20 years after that brutal betrayal of his brothers, of their throwing him into a pit and selling him, and then they went home and they told their father that Joseph was dead. So this is the beginning of Joseph's story, and I'm thinking those brothers probably figured Joseph had died. Two weeks ago, we read that Joseph had shaved his head and his face, that he was given Egyptian clothes and Egyptian name, and then later in Genesis, we'll read that Joseph uses an interpreter to speak with his brothers because he speaks to them in Egyptian. So Joseph looks like, talks like, and walks like an Egyptian which is a ridiculous song and an even more ridiculous music video. But because of how Joseph looks and acts, I get that they don't recognize him. It makes sense. Yet throughout Joseph's story, even though his outward appearance changed, we find nothing in the text that shows Joseph bowing down to their Egyptian gods. There was a great part of Joseph that remembered who he was, to whom he belonged. Even in his struggle of remembering his past, even in the struggle of still holding it, and I find this insight to be loaded with wisdom and wildly relevant for you and me today. Even immersed in the Egyptian world and the culture, Joseph remembered to whom he belonged. How do we remember to whom we belong? Especially when we're immersed in a world that doesn't seem to want us to remember. 
So I'm going to tell you about a third dad and a different son. This is another story of it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. This is the story of the prodigal son, and you can find it in Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will go out. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I love this story for so many reasons. But I think the number one story that I love it is that Jesus knows people. He told it, knowing us so well. How we think how easily we stray, how easily we can be sidetracked and enticed, how easily we are walking along and all of a sudden squirrel, right? We're influenced by the things of this world. And he knows how often and how easily we forget to whom we belong. He knows that we wander. And I wonder if he told this story to say to us, I see you, I know your hearts, and I want to remind you that you are seen and known and loved. And that following me, remembering that you belong to me, is a better way. I think if we're honest, we can all relate to that youngest son. We've let our arrogance and our sinful nature get the better of us at times. We've wasted opportunities and we've indulged in self-destructive behaviors that have left us a broken mess. We have forgotten to whom we belong. Yet the desire for redemption and acceptance marks some of the deepest longings in our souls. And the Father embodies the fulfillment of each of those longings. 
this masterful parable strikes at the heart of human nature profoundly. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times for this young man too. Except he chose stepping into the worst of times. He was in a home with comfortability and wealth, and yet he squandered it and threw it all away on his quest for adventure and freedom and pleasure. The father in this story allowed his son to go his own way, and I'll bet that broke his heart. But that free will piece matters, so we're not just silly puppets. But because of that free will, we sure can do dumb things, hurtful or destructive things. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. I think my favorite word in that verse is quick. Feast and celebrate is a close second, but the father was quick to help his son remember who he was and who he belonged. And just like the other two fathers, he gave him a robe and a ring to signify who he was and to whom he belonged. Because remembering that changes everything. When we wrap ourselves in that, our identity quickly shifts from wandering or feeling lost to being cocooned in the steadfast knowledge and resting in him, being cocooned in the knowledge that we belong to him, no matter what. Maybe this morning you feel like Joseph, And in hardship, hurt, and pain, you only kind of forget who you belong to. Maybe you're living in that tension of forgetting and not yet fully forgetting. Or maybe you're like the son who looked for his own way and completely forgot, who needed or needs your father to quickly remind you in a drastic celebratory way. How is our identity formed? How do we remember who we belong to? The story of Joseph doesn't outline how he remembers who he belonged to. We don't know the hard work that he put in to remember, but I know it was hard work because it so often goes against our human nature to remember who we belong to. We see Joseph struggling to remember. We see the prodigal son forgetting. And we know the tension in our own lives of how do I remember. So going back to the first words we read today, I think this verse is key to helping us remember and how to remember. So Pharaoh asked his officials, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? This is how our identity is formed. This is how we remember who we belong to. 
When we allow the Spirit of God to flow through us, to work in us, to heal those innermost parts, to help us remember, we will be changed. In Romans 8:15, we read, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So our identity is that we are adopted by our heavenly father. We belong to him. We are his children. We are his heirs. We are heirs right along with Jesus. Every moment of every day, our true identity never changes. It's just our acknowledgement of that identity sometimes. So on our good days, as well as our less than stellar days, we are always his child, and nothing separates us from the love of God. Nothing separates us from belonging to him. We are eternally his. Knowing what God has to say about me helps me remember who I am and that I belong to him. Listen to these verses that are scattered throughout God's word. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Knowing that will change us. It will change how we see ourselves. It will change how we walk out our days. Reminding ourselves and reminding each other of these truths. This is how our identity is formed and is cemented. This is how we remember who we belong to. In the best of times and the worst of times, we belong to him. Our identity rests in knowing that we know that we know we are his. The last line from the book, A Tale of Two Cities, is, it is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. That resting in him, in the knowing that we belong to him as his children, will give us the sweetest and best rest for our souls. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that in the best of times, Lord, and in the worst of times, you are with us, that we belong to you, Father, that in spite of circumstances or past or present, Lord, our identity rests that we are your child and you are our Father, Lord. 
Father, help us take that robe that you are offering us, Lord, to stand proud and boldly and humbly at the same time, Lord, acknowledging that we are yours. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeing good and purpose in us. In your precious name, amen.